This audio program may contain descriptions of violence and topics that may not be suitable for everyone. Please listen with caution. Do you know what the most frightening thing in the world is? It's fear. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Why, she wouldn't even harm a fly. So, I did have another news story I wanted to talk to you about. Okay, what is this? So, this actually happened in our own backyard. Okay. Not really, though. It happened in Tennessee. We don't have a backyard. <laughs> we don't. That is one of the downfalls of living in an apartment. <laughs> so, this man named Michael Cummins, uh-huh. he's 25, he was taken into custody um, after suffering non-life-threatening injuries on Saturday night. Mm-hmm. Um, by the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation. And they started searching for him because they began digging up bodies on his property. Oh, no. He was a suspect in a couple of murders. Someone made an emergency call and tipped off police that there were four bodies in his house. Well, who the fuck's this person? I have no idea. That's So it's in Sumner County, uh, 25 miles northeast of Nashville, kind of along the Kentucky border. Mm-hmm. And a fifth body was found nearby. So he became the prime suspect in both of these cases. And then they found two more bodies oh at the God. first crime scene. So... I wonder who those bodies are. Right. There's seven deaths total. They're still trying to identify the victims. And a young girl was among the bodies. So not great. I wonder. I mean, this would be a reach, but I was just reading about these two young girls who went went disappearing, (laughs) who disappeared in 2013 and no one's ever found like a body or a trace of them. Yeah. Could have been. I don't know how old the bodies are. That's the thing. Yeah, uh, these we're girls still were like teenagers. Yeah, we're still waiting for for information because yeah. this is so new. But um, he was actually found because authorities were using aircraft to to uh-huh. search for him, and he was spotted in a creek bed uh-huh. a mile from the Down first the crime crack. scene. Yeah. So one officer fired at him, and he was wounded. No officers were hurt. All that good stuff. And it's not immediately clear what relationship he has to the victims but he is definitely suspect number because one he ran well it wasn't just like and it was his property yeah. so like and he wasn't like oh my god i have to call the police immediately i found bodies on my property he yeah was just like, he's just like living with them just chilling <laughs> so you know and apparently 24 hours before some of the murders happened mm-hmm. apparently his probation Officer was sent to arrest him and didn't. Why? So, like, could have prevented those murders. Wait, but why didn't he arrest him? I don't know. There was a uh, arrest warrant and the he violated his probation for some reason, but it just never followed what through. The fuck? Yeah. Could they maybe not find him? Or Maybe. And then within 24 hours after that, he killed... A bunch of people. Does like it apparently, say what he was on probation recent. for. Um, let me see. Like, I wonder Arrest if it was violent or like rape or something, or if it was just like. Yeah, they just said he violated his probation. They didn't really say by what murdering it was people. For. Well, yeah, violate it. That, that's a violation. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> it's tricky that one. 
Yeah, so apparently he's being accused of the murders of Rachel McLaughlin P., who is 43, her 12-year-old daughter, Sapphire McLaughlin P., and um, Rachel's mother, Marsha Knuckles, 65. And um, it's not clear what his relationship was to these victims. They also... Who are the other bodies? The, the one that was at the second home was that of Shirley Farrell, who is 69 years old. Again, not sure how he knew her. Right. And another person was apparently injured by him and remains in critical condition. Hmm. Uh, we don't know who, what their identity is, though. Oh, a GoFundMe page has been established to cover Cummins' parents' funeral costs. And they stated that the hospitalized woman is Cummins' elderly grandmother. So apparently his family got a little fucked up in this confrontation. Wait, sorry. So his parents are dead? Yes. His parents are dead. I don't know if they were killed during this. Or That's by what him? it seems like. Or by him. And it just says that he has an extensive criminal record. And that in 2017... Because you said there was a lot of bodies, weren't there? Weren't there there seven. seven? Yeah. So, yeah, that would make so sense that, that would make, his parents yeah. and... And, yeah. So, in 2017, he was arrested for attacking a female neighbor and telling her that he would set her house on fire. Yeah, no, you can't do that. No, you really can't do that. So, yeah, here we go. Sorry. I'm sorry. I'm piecing this together. Okay. Um, Cummins allegedly killed his 52-year-old father, David Cummins, his 44-year-old mother, Clara Cummins, and his 45-year-old uncle. Charles Hosal inside a home at in Bethpage, Tennessee. So yeah, he killed three family members, maybe attempted to kill his grandmother, yeah. and then killed uh, the members of this other family. Right. Um, and then that other woman who we don't know, she's yeah. kind of like the outlier. But yeah, I mean, that's currently going on. He's in custody now, mm. and hopefully we'll know more soon. That's crazy. Isn't it? I mean, talk about a rampage. I mean, it's just like... I don't know. Doing research for the Pod X, mm-hmm. I was like reading all these stories and I was like, could be me. Yeah. Could be me. Because yeah. it's a lot of like missing things, like missing people. And it's just like a girl was, one girl was literally walking. She decided instead of walking to like the shuttle to go to the parking lot, she was like, it's a nice day. I'll walk. Mm. Never found again. Yeah. Nobody. There was like video camera of her because there's a bunch of shops and then there's two bridges and then it's just the parking lot. Yeah. And so she was caught on the cameras by all the, like, shops. So she got to the bridge. Was she, did she? But, but yeah. no one knows what happens after that. And mm-hmm. I was like, that just could have been me. Yeah. Could have been. For sure. I mean, the one I'm researching for Podex is all, pretty much all fast food workers. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, we work a retail job. Yeah, so like, we could just come in and exactly. shoot you. We work before opening sometimes yeah. and closing. One day at Ulta. These people just, like, stole a bunch of shit. It was late at night. They put a bunch of Dysons in, like, a shopping bag so it looked like they were going to buy yeah. it. And then they were hanging out at the front, and they just ran out. And yes, some girl ran out that. after her mm-hmm. and was like, if I had my gun, I'd shoot her, blah, 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 whatever. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, is, like, what if they had guns? Yeah. And that they girl ran after her, and she just, they just started shooting. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's, like, mm-hmm. shit like that where it's, like, you never even really think about it until yeah. after it happens and you hear something similar. Mm-hmm. Like, I think about the yogurt shop murders mm-hmm. or the Lululemon murder yeah. where it's like you could just have a crazy co-worker, co-worker. yeah it, it, i mean it could be anywhere it's really terrifying yeah. yeah well today we're switching topics off of real life murder i think i don't know i don't know what yours is mine's a real life murder okay then 
So we're not switching. We're <laughs> staying on for now. And we are talking about the true origins of horror movies part Yay. two. Wait, yours isn't a murder? No, no mine's not a murder. I don't remember what you told me, but I, I don't did. remember. Mine's, fu- mine's long, but... Okay. Mine I, might be a little long. I don't remember. Oh, no, that's good, though. Mm-hmm. Okay. We'll have a nice juicy... A juicy. Get all this. The story makes me die inside, oh, just no. so you know. And it's going to make you no, die. No, I don't want to die. It's okay. You might cry a little. <laughs> okay. A little. Okay. <laughs> so, The Girl Next Door. Have you ever seen that movie? Mm-hmm. It's a horror movie. You've seen it? Sylvia Likens. Yep. <laughs> it came out in 2007. Mm-hmm. And there's also one called An American Shh. Crime with Ellen Page. <laughs> this isn't your story. <laughs> uh, in 2007... The plot from IMDb is based on the Jack Ketchum novel of the same name. The girl next door follows the unspeakable torture and abuses committed on a teenage girl in the care of her aunt and the boys who witnessed and failed to report the crime. Mm-hmm. So there's literally like no one I've ever heard of in this movie. Yeah. Um, except the guy who, have you ever seen the Die Hard movies? No. The guy <laughs> who plays Thornburg is in the movie. Uh-huh. But what is he? What is he in Die Hard or what no, is he in, in this, this movie. movie? I don't know. Okay. I think he's just like... A dude. A dude. <laughs> okay. I think he's uh, he's either like the priest or a detective. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it didn't win any Oscars. Mm-hmm. Um, no. No, it didn't. And uh, I didn't like rent it, so I didn't watch it. But there's a lot of clips of it you can see. Yeah, it doesn't look great, right? Yeah, it doesn't look great. And there's a clip of like a young girl being fucking like tortured. And yeah. I was like, well, I'm done with this. There's also Austin stepping all over my yeah. toes. An Ellen Page vehicle called mm-hmm. American Crime, which is more true to life. It's more of like a fake documentary, if you will. Yeah. Kind of. Um, it's got Evan Peters in it. Yep. James Franco. <laughs> Haley McFarlane. Um, and some other really great people. Yeah. I think I actually first heard about this case in like one of those ID channel shows. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I saw that movie. Have you ever watched that? An American Crime Now. Yeah. I was like, after the ID channel one, I was like, I don't think I can watch Look, a movie about this. Ellen Page is great. James She's Franco's awesome. doing fine. Evan <laughs> Peters does great. True hero, Haley McFarlane. Yeah. She's fucking great mm-hmm. as that younger sister. Yeah. And it's so subtle. So like, mm-hmm. you're just, you believe she's there. Yeah. She's and a great that's actress. like, that's tough. Yeah. To act in if her. you're like younger. Yeah. She does Yikes. great and all. And she's got those big eyes. You know, mm-hmm. she's from, if no one knows, she's from, she plays, she's always in like the Conjuring movies. She's yeah. one of the sisters. She's got like big eyes. She also plays the daughter in Lie to Me. I think that that's really mm-hmm. all I can say. Anyway, but she's a good actress. <laughs> so all of these were based on a woman, a girl, Sylvia Marie Likens. Mm-hmm. Austin stepping on my toes. <laughs> So, Sylvia Marie Likens was born January 3rd, 1949, and was the third of five children born to carnival workers Lester Cecil Likens and Elizabeth Frances Bede. She was born between, uh, between two sets of fraternal twins. There was Diana and Daniel, which were two years older than her, and Jenny and Benny, one year younger than her. Oh, you, Jenny and Benny. Yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah, Diana and Daniel, why do that? So Jenny Likens suffered from polio as a child, Mm. um, and the condition caused one of her legs to be weaker than the other, giving her a very noticeable limp. She was just bouncing around all over town. So everyone was very, like, protective of Jenny. Everybody loved Jenny. She was, like, a sweet little Mm -hmm. bean. Okay, so the marriage of the Likens was an unstable one, Mm -hmm. primarily due to the fact that 
they were often unemployed, or you could find them selling beer and soda at carnival stands yep. around Indiana in summer months. They're fucking carnies. Yeah, I already <laughs> said that, though. I know, but I love that they were <laughs> fucking carnies. Um, so the Likens family moved pretty frequently, mm-hmm. and the parents regularly experienced financial difficulties. Because they were carnies. Yeah. The Likens <laughs> sons sometimes would help the parents with carnival stuff, although Betty especially was concerned for their younger daughter's safety jenny and sylvia normally they stayed with like aunts or uncles or family friends or whatever or mm-hmm. sometimes they travel with them but if they did they didn't let them do anything yeah although an exuberant girl <laughs> said wikipedia due to the fact that she had lost one of her front teeth sylvia always kept her mouth closed when smiling i just Aww. thought that was a sad little detail yeah. she was fond of music she loved the beatles and she was outgoing, mm-hmm. but very protective of her timid and insecure younger sister, Jenny. So, okay. like, mm-hmm. would do anything for her. Yeah. Ride or die. Ride or die, mm-hmm. bitch. So, by June of 1965, Sylvia and Jenny resided with their mother in Indianapolis after their parents' divorce. Mm-hmm. On July 3rd, their mother was arrested and subsequently jailed for shoplifting. Shortly after, Lester Likens arranged for his daughters to board with Gertrude Benes. Benizuski. I've never said the name out loud, so that was my first time. Benizuski. Can I see it? I might remember how to say it. It's, uh... Oh, yeah. Benizowski or something. Benizowski? Benizuski. Okay. I'm going to say Benizuski. Okay. <laughs> Who was a mother of seven, um, whose daughters were acquaintances with Jenny and Sylvia, so they knew mm-hmm. each other. Gertrude was born in Indianapolis in September 19, 1928. She was the third of six children, mm-hmm. and on October 5th, 1939, she witnessed her 50-year-old father's death from a sudden heart attack, which is probably great. Great. Awesome. Six years later, she dropped out of high school to marry 18-year-old John Stephen Benazowski. Um, Can't trust those poles. Yep. <laughs> he had a volatile temper, but the two remained together for 10 years prior to their divorce. They get divorced, and then she marries... Another man named Edward Gerthy. That marriage only lasted three months before the couple divorced. Then she remarries another husband, bearing two more children with him. And then they get a divorce. And then she starts a relationship with 22-year-old Dennis Lee Wright, who also physically abused her. Um, she had one child with him, and then Wright abandoned her. Mm. Then she does all this paternity stuff to get pay for her kids, and she gets yeah. it. So she gets all you know all like of child her support. Yep, and she stuff. gets child yeah. support. She probably really needs it. She has a shit ton yeah. of kids. By 1967, she lived alone with her seven children: Paula, mm. who was 17; Stephanie, who was 15; John, who was 12; Marie, who was 11; Shirley, who was 10; James, who was eight; and Dennis Lee Wright Jr., who was just a month old in 1965. Aww. Although she was only 36 years old, she was notably underweight and had been described as a haggard, underweight, asthmatic chain smoker, <laughs> suffering from depression due to the stress of three failed marriages, a failed relationship, um, and seven fucking children, yeah. <laughs> and sporadic checks she received from her husband. Oh my cool. God. So her life was, do- she was yeah. doing great. I love that that's the description of her. That's so on point. Yeah. <laughs> so she would occasionally perform odd jobs, like sewing or cleaning. Um, or juggling live snakes. Right. <laughs> to receive money. <laughs> Hence, taking on the Likens girl. She was like, sure, if you give me money, I'll, I'll yeah. take care of them. Like a boarding situation. Yes. She received $20 a week for their room and board, which was a lot, considering that the rent for her home was only $55. Oh, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> In comparison. Yeah. It's like, it's a lot. Okay. Yeah. 
So for the first two weeks, Sylvia and her sister were treated kindly enough. Gertrude's oldest daughter, 17-year-old Paula, seemed to butt heads with Sylvia a lot. A lot of people were like, she was jealous because she was pretty, Mm -hmm. whatever, you know, 17-year-old bitchy stuff. But then one week, their father's payment came in late. Um, I took care of you two bitches for two weeks for nothing, Gertrude spat at Sylvia and Jenny. She grabbed Sylvia by the arm, dragged her into a room, and closed the door. Jenny could only sit outside the door and listen as her sister screamed. The money arrived the following day, but the torture had already begun. Soon, Gertrude began to abuse both Sylvia and Jenny in broad daylight. She was a frail woman, but she would use a heavy paddle and thick leather belt from her husband's, who had been a cop. So her first Uh ex-husband, who had been a cop. When she was too exhausted or too weak to discipline the girls herself, Paula stepped in to take her place. Soon, Sylvia, however, became the main focus. Many speculate it was because she was young, pretty, and healthy, Mm. whereas her younger sister had, like, a limp and had polio and was kind of timid and shy. And so everyone was like, oh, she thinks she's so great. Mm -hmm. But also people were like, Sylvia was really protective anyway. So even if they were going for her, she'd probably be like, hit me instead. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, her sister was just seen as frailer. No one was jealous of a girl with polio. You know what I mean? Gertrude then accused Sylvia of stealing from her and burned the girl's fingers tips. (gasps) She took her to church functions and force-fed her free hot dogs until she was sick. What? Then as... Oh, yeah. It's going to get gross for a second. For 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 a long time. For a long time. Then as punishment for throwing up the good food, she forced her to eat her own vomit. She allowed her children... Actually, she encouraged her children to partake in the abuse of Sylvia. Benizuski kids practiced karate on Sylvia, slamming her head into walls and onto floors. They used her skin as an ashtray, threw her downstairs, cut open her skin, and rubbed salt into the wounds. After this, she would often be cleansed in a scalding hot bath. Gertrude gave sermons on the evil of sexual immorality while Paula stomped on Sylvia's vagina. Ew. Yeah. Paula, who was pregnant herself, Uh. would accuse Sylvia of being with child and mutilated the girl's genitals. Gertrude's 12-year-old son, John Jr., delighted in forcing the girl to lick his younger sibling's soiled diapers clean. Ew. Yeah. Oh, my God. We probably should have put a little warning before this. Sorry. Oh, well. Oh, my gosh. Warning. Sylvia was forced to strip naked and shove an empty Coca-Cola bottle into her vagina while the children watched. Sylvia was also beaten, unable to use the bathroom voluntarily, And when she wet her mattress, Gertrude decided that the girl was no longer fit to live with the rest of the children. The 16-year-old was locked into the basement without any food or access to a bathroom. 16. Yeah. So Gertrude spread every story she could to get local kids to join in with the beatings. She told her daughter that Sylvia had called her a whore and got her daughter's friends to come over and beat her up for it. So she was like, yeah, she's calling my daughter a whore. And their friends were like, oh, fuck this girl. Yeah. Later during the trial, some of the kids were open about how Gertrude had recruited them. One teenage girl named Anna Sisko recalled how Gertrude told her that Sylvia had been saying that her mother went out with all sorts of men and got $5 for going to bed with them. So basically... She was like, oh, Sylvia's calling your mom a $5 whore. Yeah, cheapo. Yeah. So Anna never bothered to find out if it was true. Mm. Um, And Gertrude told her, I don't care what you do to Sylvia. So Anna threw Sylvia down to the ground, beat her face, and kicked her. 
Gertrude told her own children that Sylvia was a prostitute, which I know you're supposed to say sex worker, but in this case, I'm saying prostitute. Quoting, yeah. Obviously, because that's what... Then she had Ricky Hobbs, a neighborhood boy, and her 11-year-old daughter, Marie, carve the words, I'm a prostitute and proud of it, in her abdomen with a heated needle. (laughs) A heated needle? Yes. Yep. Oh, that wouldn't even... uh... Yep. So at one point, Sylvia's older sister, Diana, attempted to see the girls under Gertrude's care, but was turned away at the door. Jenny later reported how Diana snuck food into the basement in which Sylvia was hidden. A neighbor has had also reported the incidents to a public health nurse because the neighbor knew Sylvia was in the basement. So she was like, hey, someone should go check that out. Yeah. And a public health nurse went in, didn't check the basement because oh. she didn't think she had to. Yeah. And was like, oh, well, I don't see anything wrong here mm-hmm. and just left and never did anything about Ugh. it. Other next door neighbors alleged were aware of how Sylvia was abused. They had seen Paula strike the girl, but claimed not to report the abuse because they feared for their own lives. Jenny was threatened, bullied, and beaten, and told that she would end up just like her sister if she went to the authorities. Ugh. The abuse of Sylvia continued unhindered. I mean, months. It was yeah. just... Eventually, she told her sister, I'm going to die. I can tell. Mm. Three days. She said this three days before she was going to die. Gertrude could tell, too. And so she forced Sylvia to write a note in which she told her parents that she'd run away. Mm. Sylvia was also forced to write a note talking about how she met up with a group of boys, had sex with them, and afterwards they had beaten and mutilated her body. Mm -hmm. That way, when the police eventually found Found her body body. they'd be like oh this is from those boys Mm -hmm. so sylvia likens attempted one final escape and she managed to get out the front door before gertrude caught her Mm. sylvia was so weak from her injuries she could not have possibly gotten very far and with the assistance of a neighbor boy named coy hubbard gertrude beat sylvia with a curtain rod until she fell unconscious then when she came back to she stomped on her head and that's what killed her Yep. So Sylvia was dead by October 26, 1965, from a brain hemorrhage, shock, and malnutrition. After three months of torture and starvation, she could no longer form intelligible words and could barely move her limbs. Mm -hmm. When Gertrude finally accepted that Sylvia was dead, she instructed Richard Hobbs to call the police from a nearby payphone. And when the police came, Gertrude said that Sylvia had been out with boys in the woods and she had told them that they had beaten her to death. And carved, I'm a prostitute and proud of it, into her body. So Jenny Likens was instructed by Gertrude to recite, like, a version of the events to them. And was like, no, nothing's wrong, really. She really was. Mm -hmm. But shortly after 5.30 p.m., the police were still trying to get answers from Jenny. And she leans in and whispers, you get me out of here and I'll tell you everything. Mm -hmm. The statement ultimately provided by Jenny Likens, combined with the discovery of Sylvia's emaciated, extensively bludgeoned, mutilated body lying upon a soiled mattress in the basement, prompted the officers to arrest Gertrude, Paula, Stephanie, John Benzuski Jr., Richard Hobbs, Coy Hubbard, on the suspicion of her murder. Mm. The three eldest Benzuski children, plus Coy Hubbard, were placed in the custody of a nearby juvenile detention center. The younger Benazuski children and Richard Hobbs were sent to Indianapolis Children's Guardian's home. All were held without bail pending their trials. Mm. So five other neighborhood children who had participated in Sylvia's abuse, Mike Monroe, Randy Gordon Lepper, Darlene McGuire, Judy Duke, and Anna Sisko, 
had been arrested by October 29th. Mm. They were all charged with causing injury to a person, and each were subsequently released into the custody of their parents to appear as witnesses in the upcoming trial. Mm -hmm. The autopsy of Sylvia's body revealed that she had suffered 150 separate wounds across her entire body, in addition to being extremely emaciated at the time of her death. The wounds themselves varied in location. Her injuries included burns, severe bruising, as well as extensive muscle and nerve damage. Mm. Her vagina cavity was almost swollen shut. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Although uh. her hymen was still intact, so mm-hmm. they don't think she was like raped. raped. Yeah. She just but but they were, were doing just all stuck kinds of there, yeah. stuff. Yeah. And also proved that, okay, so this clearly wasn't a prostitute if her hymen yeah. like that would be crazy. Yeah. All of Sylvia's fingernails were broken backwards. <gasps> no. Yeah. And most of the external layers of skin by her face, breast, neck, and right knee had been peeled. <gasps> so, like, exposed. Ugh. It's just. <sighs> In her death rows, Sylvia had eventually bitten through her lips, partially severing sections of them from her face. Oh, my gosh. Here's a warning. When you Google her. Her crime scene photo will come up. Oh, no. Or not even crime scene photo. It's her on that bed when they found her. Yeah. It just pops right up. Oh. Uh, just pops right there. So, you know, oh maybe gosh. cover the images if you don't mm. want to see that. So, the official cause of Sylvia's death was listed by the coroner as a subdermal hematoma caused by several blows to her right temple. Mm-hmm. Although, they think that the severe malnutrition and damage she had suffered before, they think that even if she had gone to a hospital, even if she had escaped right then, she probably would have died well, anyway. Yeah, she wouldn't have made it. Dr. Keeble, the coroner, also noted that Sylvia had been recently bathed, probably after death. Uh-huh. And that this could have hastened the loss of body temperature and increased the onset of rigor mortis. So the time of death could be a little off. Like yeah. she could have died sooner. Mm-hmm. Or The trial of Gertrude and her children, Paula and John, and Richard Hobbs and Coy Hubbard, began on April 18, 1966. All were tried together before Judge Saul Isaac Rabb at Indianapolis City County Building. The jury selection began... And continued for several days. The prosecution sought the death penalty for all five defendants in the Mm. case. And also argued that they were all tried together because they were acting, quote unquote, in concert. Yeah. In their collective crimes against Sylvia. And if they were tried separately, neither judge nor jury could hear testimony relating to the the total picture. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The kids claimed that they had been pressured into participating into Sylvia's torture and torment by Gertrude. And Gertrude herself chose to plead not guilty by reason of insanity. Mm. Which, yeah, that bitch probably was insane, but I don't know why she did it. Okay, She's not not culpably insane. Yeah. She knew to fucking cover it up and try to make it seem... Yeah. So the trial lasted 17 days. And on May 19, 1966, Gertrude was convicted of first-degree murder. Paula was found guilty of second-degree murder. And Hobbs, Hubbard, and John were found guilty of Sylvia's manslaughter. Gertrude and her children burst into tears upon hearing the verdict and attempted to console each other, while Hobbs and Hubbard remained impassive. Mm Mm-hmm. So what the fuck does that mean? No. It's like, is it worse to fake cry or is it worse to show no emotion? Mm. Well, one is or, more honest. <laughs> or was one like, oh, we deserve this, so we're not going to... You know what yeah. I mean? Like, I wonder mm-hmm. what they were thinking. I wonder if they were like, we deserve this, so whatever. At yeah. least it's only manslaughter. Or mm-hmm. were they like, I'd do it again. Yeah. You know, like... The deputy prosecutor closing argument said that there was practically no fat on Sylvia's body. She hadn't eaten for a week. 
We'll never know the pain and suffering that Sylvia endured. The best evidence of that was the picture of her lips, lips that were bitten into shreds. On May 25th, Gertrude and Paula were formally sentenced to life imprisonment. The same day, Richard, Coy, and John each received sentences of 2 to 21 years. That's the minimum? 2. Jesus Christ. In September of 1970, the Indiana Supreme Court reversed the conviction of Gertrude and Paula on the bias that Judge Saul Isaac Rabb had denied repeatedly submitted motions by their defense counsel to move the trial to another location, Mm -hmm. saying they wouldn't receive a fair trial there. Yeah. Paula opted to plead guilty to voluntary manslaughter rather than face a new trial. Mm -hmm. And she was sentenced to serve a term between two and 20 years. And she has been noted as being described as the most enthusiastic participant in Sylvia's tortured torture aside from her mother. Yeah. So despite twice unsuccessfully having attempted to escape from prison in 1971, so she she attempted twice in 1971, yeah. right? In 1972, she was released. Gertrude, however, was convicted of first-degree murder again and sentenced to life in prison. Mm-hmm. Over the course of the following 14 years, Gertrude became known as a model prisoner. She worked in the prison sewing shop. She was known as a den mother to young female mm-hmm. inmates. And by the time of Gertrude's parole in 1985, she described herself as a devout Christian and was known by some within the prison by the nickname Mom. She yeah. famously said about the killing that God had forgiven her and she now has peace. Yeah. Good I'm for sure. you. I'm sure you're forgiven. Fucking she should be in no position that's that is not motherly. God talking to you. That's the yeah. devil himself. Yeah. I think we should have just all stood around her and beaten her to death yeah. with clubs. So she gets paroled and she lived in relative obscurity in Laurel, Iowa until her death due to lung cancer on June 16, 1990 at the age of 61. Mm-hmm. So clearly her body has given up on her. She was yes. like, girl, you got to go. Yeah. This is not okay. You need to leave. It was just like, if they won't take care of you, we will. We yeah. just got to end this. Exactly. One of the reporters for the Indianapolis Star who did a lot of press coverage for the case, he he wrote about her. I never thought she was insane. I thought she was downtrodden and a mean woman. Mm-hmm. It's like good. That is yeah. a good description. Jenny Likens later married an Indianapolis native named Leonard Race Wade, and the couple had two children. Unfortunately, she died of a heart attack on June 23, 2004, at the age of 54. Oh. 14 years prior to her death, Jenny Likens Wade had viewed Gertrude's obituary in the newspaper. She clipped the section from her newspaper and then mailed it to her mother with a note simply reading, Some good news. Damn old Gertrude died. Ha ha ha. I'm happy about that. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So good. So following her 1972 parole, Paula assumed a new identity. She worked as an aide to a school counselor for 14 years at the Iowa uh, Union Witten School District having changed her name to Paula Pace and having concealed the truth regarding her criminal history. She was fired in 2012 when the school discovered her true identity. Yeah. Duh. Bye, bitch. So she lives in a small town in Iowa. She's married and has two children. What about, wasn't she pregnant when that happened? What about that yeah, kid? Yeah, the baby daughter to whom she had given birth while being trialed in 1966 oh. and whom she named after her mother was later adopted. So Ugh. she has three kids, but one of them got to go to a new family. Yeah, thank God. thank God. So the murder charges initially filed against Gertrude's second eldest daughter, 15-year-old Stephanie, were ultimately dropped after she agreed to turn state's evidence against the other defendants. Stephanie assumed a new name and became a school teacher. Why? Why do they want to be around kids? Yeah, she later married and had several children. 
your head. Ugh. The baby, Dennis, the the one who was, you know. A month old. A month old. Was later adopted. Oh, good. And chose to name him, well, I won't say his name. You don't need to know his name. No. Let him keep his yeah, privacy. Well, I mean, Jeez. it's almost the same name, but yeah. whatever. So Richard Hubbs, Coy Hubbard, and John Benazuski Jr., each served less than two years. Less than two years? Jeez. Before being granted parole on February 27th, 1968. Richard Hobbs died of cancer on January 2nd, 1972 at the age of 21. Oh my gosh. Yeah, his yeah. body real gave out on yeah. him quick. So, it was just like, no, nah, we got... Yeah, we set. got places yeah. to go in a day. Gotta yeah, end the this. The devil's calling you home. Uh, so following his 1968 release from prison, Coy Hubbard remained in Indiana and uh, never attempted to change his name. Okay. He was repeatedly imprisoned throughout his adult life for various criminal offenses. One time he was charged with the murder of two men, although he was later acquitted, but he probably did it. Yeah, I would think so. Yeah. So uh, an American crime premiered in January 2007, and Hubbard was fired immediately after from his job. He then died of a heart attack on June 23rd. At the age of 56. Great. John Benazuski Jr. lived a relatively obscure life under the alias John Blake. He became a lay minister, frequently hosting counseling sessions to children of divorced parents. No one in this story should be understand. around children. I don't get it. So several decades after his release, John issued a statement claiming the young criminals are not beyond help and describing how he had become a decent and productive citizen. I'm sure he didn't. On May 19, 2005, he died of diabetes Great. at the age of 52. I'm really glad sugar took that bitch out. Yeah. And Ruth Sisko, Judy Darlene Duke, Michael John Moore, Darlene McGuire, and Randy Gordon Lepper were never prosecuted for their mm. crimes. In June 2001, a six-foot-tall granite memorial was formally dedicated to Sylvia Likens' life and legacy in Willard Park, Washington Street, Indianapolis. The dedication was attended by several hundred people, including members of Sylvia's family. The memorial itself is inscribed with the words, This memorial is the memory of a young child who died a tragic death. As a result, laws changed and awareness increased. This is a commitment to our children that the Indianapolis Police Department is working to make this a safe city for our children. The site where it all took place, 3850 East New York Street, is now a church parking lot. Great. <laughs> I'm glad that's what it became. Yeah. Yeah, yeah makes so much sense. Uh, Nothing in this story makes yeah. sense. I know, Nothing. right? It's like, what? Yeah. Uh, that is, so that case and the case of Junko Futura, those two yes. are like the only yes. cases that turn my stomach. Right? And like, I've I've heard, I listened to a lot of podcasts that didn't go into as heavy a detail, yeah. but it's like, she deserves her details to be, yeah. she, people deserve, I people mean, need sh- to be confronted with what happens when you exactly. let fucking maniacs run wild. Because when they're not, wild. when they're not confronted, people go, oh, well, it wasn't that like they they make it into this thing of like oh well it wasn't that bad it wasn't so then it just keeps repeating itself instead of being so horrified yeah that they like the her memorial says that they change laws and they change things Mm -hmm. and so like now uh, yeah a bunch of sometimes you need to be confronted with the worst of humankind it's like to to wake up and realize that this shit is real it kind of reminds me of that case now, I don't remember any of these names, but do you remember it was like a politician or like it was in New York City. It was like a really rich guy and his wife and they had three kids, I think, or two kids. And one of them died all of a sudden. And it turned out to be like 
this whole abuse thing, but it was basically like they were on cocaine and they were just rich, so no one did anything no, about it. No, I don't think And I've that's heard about the that. case. And she would go to school and teachers would be like, oh, she's getting abused. But that's the case that eventually made the law in place that if a teacher suspects abuse, they have, they have to, to by law or they'll go to yeah. re- reporter. Yes, or they'll go to prison if, mm-hmm. if you know. So that created that law. And that was, it was one of those cases where you hear all these things that are happening to a child. Yeah. Where like, she was like seven or something and she was being sexually abused and all this shit where it's like, yeah. and no one did. It's same in this case. Like you're fearing for your life, but she could have survived. Like mm-hmm. had one of those neighbors just, I mean, that one neighbor who called the nurse, it's like, yeah, she kind of did that. But like, call the police, call, tell them to check the basement. I don't know. I don't know what I want yeah. them to do, but it's just And also Gertrude's like a haggard old bitch. Like can't you just fucking push her to the floor? She's not I mean, yeah, here's the thing. Y- yeah, she wasn't I mean, I think they are probably afraid her kids would come at like as a neighbor, you'd probably be like, "Oh, or what if they shoot me or something?" Like clearly yeah. she's insane, so yeah. like who knows what they're going to do. You never know. Like you might think, "Oh, well if I call the police and she sees the police come, what if she kills her?" But it's yeah. like, "But what if you don't call the police and she kills her yeah. anyway?" She's going to kill her anyway. Like eventually, yeah, that like point. that's never going to lead to her going, "Okay, I'm done abusing you. Yeah. You're fine. Uh-huh. Goodbye." Bye. It's like eventually that's going to end up in death. Yeah, or either someone's way. going to have to die. Either mm-hmm. she's going to have to die or the kid's going to have to die. Yeah. So it's like, call the police and be like, you know, fucking, they're hurting her. Yeah. And they have a girl named Sylvia. So if you go into the house and you can't find Sylvia, they're hiding her somewhere. Yeah. So like... Mm-hmm. Also, what the fuck is in the water in that town where those neighbor kids are just We're down just like to down fucking for it. beat people? It's because... Like, what the nobody, fuck? Little sociopaths. India, look, don't uh, live in the Midwest. There's nothing to do. <laughs> kids are just like... Oh, well, she called me because here's the thing. I mean, I get I get as a kid being so like she called me a whore. I'm going to get that bitch. But like you would think you would get to her and she'd be like crumpled on the floor and you'd be like, oh, Oh, yeah, she probably for one, she's probably not calling me a whore. Yeah. And for two, I'm not going to beat up a woman. Like it's one thing to like get into a schoolyard fight with someone who's like, your mom's a slut. And and then you like punch her in the face. But it's another thing to like. She is like covered in burns. Who's like clearly hasn't eaten. And she's like, and she's like begging you not to. And like. By all accounts, she was a lovely person. So yeah. like, so it's like, what is wrong with those? Right, with all of those kids. But they're just like, like okay. Ugh. I mean, and like some of the things are just like shoving a coke can up a vagina. That's not just punching someone in the face. No. Like that's a whole that's, new th- level that is of something. Sadistic. Yeah. They are all mentally fucked. Yes. That's those people. all of those were just like to the extreme. Yes. Even that Anna Cisco girl. It's like, oh yeah, no, she's fucked. Too. Like They're you all. beat her. And then it's one thing to be like, to go there and be like, you know, whatever. But you would think if you knew something was happening, you'd call the police. Yeah. I mean, at that point, the torture is so evident. It's yeah. not like she looked totally fine. and was like going to class and seemed so yeah. normal. No, and then like one day she's dead. she's getting the shit beat out of right. her all the time. And she's fearing for her life and she's in a fucking basement. Yeah. Like, She's not you being to, fed. She's look, lost a bunch of weight. If you like, have to go down into a basement to beat someone, <laughs> don't, do not call yeah. your parents a whore. This, I can assure listen, you this. This isn't Fight Club. Yeah. Like, like <laughs> how if she doesn't come to school, how how is she even spreading this rumor that your yeah. mom's a whore and why would you even She's care? She's in a basement. She's yeah. in a basement, like, eating soiled diapers. Yeah. This is what you're oh. coming into. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. No. They all need to just be... Like at work, they need to be destroyed in field. Yeah, all of those just, kids. And then they all t- serving less than two years. Yeah, I mean they need to be locked up. No for wonder life. they all died young. 
Yeah. I None mean, of them really made it. Gertrude was the oldest one. She died at yeah, like 60 something. Yeah, she was already fucking old. Yeah. Everyone only, I mean, I think the oldest after that, I mean, I think the ladies lived long, but yeah. the men really died quick. Yeah. Good. That 21-year-old who died of cancer, his mm-hmm. body just, he nope. did not want to live anymore. It's the evil manifesting. Yeah. It's like what we talked about last week with Carla Hamalka. Yeah. It's yeah. like the devil was just like, yeah. I'm calling just you home, it. son. Yeah. <laughs> He's dragging them down yeah. from the inside. Exactly. <laughs> his body's fine, but his soul, soul has left it. him. Just rotted. It in left there. him right before he beat that poor girl. Yeah, exactly. It left his body. Well, that was rough. Yeah. So I think I'm going to go on to something a little more lighthearted. Oh, okay. Well, you're the one who picked the topic. I okay? did pick the topic. <laughs> that was. Everybody go watch The Girl Woo. Next Door. I'm no, sure. Go watch an American <laughs> Crime. American Crime will probably make you. It, it will make you really devastated and sad. Yeah. The Girl Next Door is probably kind of like, campy. But yeah, it's more modernized, I feel well, like. Well, also, it's like a family. It's like yeah. her aunts beating her and stuff. And I'm pretty yeah. sure in A Girl Next Door. It's it's very different. Also, not to, not for spoilers, but I I think she lives. Oh really? Yeah, oh yeah. I think she lives fuck, in the girl next door because it's more of like a true horror movie yeah. where in the end she survives. Uh huh. It's just like the horror of and like the whole movie is about her trying to get out and trying to get help and no one's helping her and all this yeah. stuff. It's that it's that trope of like in a horror movie and then you get away and then you go find help and that that yeah. person's also it's it's what's that movie? Chainsaw Massacre, where yes. she gets away and finds the old lady or and whatever, then and then that yeah. the person in the truck is the killer. Is the killer. You know, mm-hmm. it's the it's the same thing. Yeah, where it's like, oh, you finally found another person, no, and they're didn't. in on it too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's my biggest fear. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's fucked up. Yeah. So I'm gonna tell you. About the true story behind The Conjuring. Oh, right. Yes. Okay. This won't be as bad. No. So in 2013, James Wan's horror movie, The Conjuring, was released in theaters. Oh, my God. Wait. It seems so long. It seems not that long ago. How funny that I mentioned the actress in The Conjuring. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Well, shout out to her. Everyone go She's watch great. The Conjuring after this. Now considered a horror classic, the film depicted the paranormal events that plagued the Perrin family after they moved to a historic farmhouse in the 1970s. Never moved to a farmhouse. (laughs) They're all haunted. Yes. The film became one of many to fictionalize the accounts of husband-wife paranormal investigator team Ed and Lorraine Warren. Ed, a World War II veteran and former police officer, that I did not know. I didn't know that either. He was a self-professed demonologist, and his wife Lorraine claimed to be a clairvoyant and medium. The couple founded the New England Society for Psychic Research in 1952 and gained notoriety for their involvement in the Amityville haunting case. And which, they looked just like Patrick What's-His-Face <laughs> and... And uh, Vera Farmiga. Yeah. <laughs> also, side note, Vera Farmiga is like... New Age horror queen. Yes. Her and then her little sister. Yes. Taisa. They are like the queens of horror and I love it. They're just the best. They are. They're really great. They're so good. When The Conjuring was released in the early 2010s, Lorraine Warren served as a consultant on the film and maintained that the events that take place in the film actually transpired. The movie takes place in 1971 and begins with Carolyn and Roger Perrin moving their large family into an old farmhouse in Rhode Island. The family of seven quickly begins experiencing disturbing activity in the home. Wait, so their dog actually dies? No. I don't think they had a dog. (laughs) Oh, okay. Yeah. Because in the movie, the dog I know. (laughs) With the hauntings taking a toll on everyone in the family and only getting worse, Carolyn reaches out to Ed and Lorraine Warren for help. 
The Warrens visited the home and determined that the home is being haunted by the malevolent spirit of a woman who sacrificed her seven-day-old baby to Satan. Good job. Yep. According You've to th- done it. <laughs> <laughs> According to the Warrens, this woman's spirit had possessed every mother that came after her to murder their children. The Warrens eventually exorcised the spirit and saved the family from meeting the same fate as those that came before them, though the experience takes a toll on Lorraine's spiritual health. The fictional Perrin family leaves the home and never returns. After The Conjuring was released, members of the real Perrin family began to speak out about some of the inaccuracies in the film. One of the Perrin sisters, Andrea Perrin, has given many interviews about her experience, and in 2011, she released her memoir, House of Darkness, House of Light, about the haunting. Now, House of Darkness, House of Light became a three-part book series. Oh, okay. I've never read it. I didn't even know. I So I, I read, read it. half of it, and Is I it actually, good? I have it on, like, um apple books or whatever mm-hmm. it's very good okay. she lays it out in a very interesting way and i love listening to interviews of hers so I'll, some of this information i got from her who words. plays her in the movie um it's someone, is she the oldest she is the oldest gotcha. okay. yeah we can put on our instagram there because there's a picture of all the actors than the real people yeah. so the perrin family consisted of roger and carolyn perrin and their five daughters april andrea christine cynthia and nancy The eldest sister, Andrea, was born in Rhode Island shortly before her family relocated to Willimantic, Connecticut. While living in Connecticut, the younger four Perrin sisters were born. Carolyn Perrin did not like the environment where the family lived and thought that her daughters required a larger, quieter place to grow up. So the family was overjoyed when they had the means and opportunity to move out of a more suburban area to a historic, sprawling farm in Harrisville, Rhode Island. The home, known as the Arnold Estate, was built in 1736 and came with 200 acres of land. The house was a white, single-level ranch that had 14 rooms. I think it's a single level, not sure, because one part of it might have an upstairs, but it's hard to tell from pictures. It was a farmhouse? Yeah. It's, it's, it's weird like if a, it wouldn't have an upper level. It's But it's a, like a ranch. It's long. It's a long, long boy. Is it a ranch or is it a farmhouse? <laughs> well, it's on a farm, and it is a <laughs> house on a farm, but it's a ranch style. Gotcha. So Andrea Perrin was 13 years old when her family moved to the Arnold Estate. And the Perrin family had saved and sacrificed to be able to move to the home. But they didn't know that the estate had a terrifying history when they decided to purchase it. You gotta Google that shit. (laughs) It was the 70s. Oh, yeah. The day the Perrin family became the owners of the Arnold Estate, the previous owner told Roger Perrin, quote, What a dick move. Yeah. Sorry. (laughs) He he just told him, For the sake of your family, leave the lights on at night. Andrea began experiencing paranormal activity immediately upon moving into the the house. Probably not. In the book, there's a whole, like, there's a section about Roger the first night they move in. And how he was using, like, a flashlight or something, and shit began happening, and then he turns the lights on, and because he didn't leave the lights on. Yeah. He was like, fuck that, I'm not wasting electricity on shit. (laughs) So, at first, small things seemed amiss. Carolyn noticed that a broom would constantly go missing and move while it was out of her sight. She also began hearing the sounds of something scraping against the kettle when her kitchen was empty. Then, Carolyn began finding small piles of dirt in the center of the kitchen floor just after she had cleaned it. Maybe she's a bad cleaner. (laughs) Well, they said that, I think they called this ghost the sweeping ghost. So it was like 
it would sweep the, this piles of dirt <laughs> everywhere. And it really, <laughs> they're not place. helping. It's yeah. just annoying. Soon, spirits began appearing to the parent children. The ghost of a boy named Oliver Richardson interacted with April Perrin, the youngest daughter, and lived in her bedroom closet. We're great. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> April became friends with Oliver, and when the Warrens eventually showed up, April kept him a secret out of fear that they would chase him away. Andrea Perrin recalls seeing a spirit that looked just like herself as an old woman in 17th century attire. The girls would occasionally see the spirits of a father, son, and dog standing at the top of the staircase. The three spirits would stare at a specific spot on the wall as if they were looking out of a window there. One ghost that would often appear was that of Mrs. Arnold, who would tuck the girls into bed at night and would kiss them on the forehead. Yeah, not all bad. Another spirit was that of Mrs. Arnold's son, or grandson, not sure, Johnny Arnold. He had hung himself in the attic of the house in the mid-1700s, but his spirit was not violent or angry. The girls nicknamed him Manny, and they often played with him and lent him their toys. Now, I don't how, ha- did, how did Mrs. Arnold die? We, like I don't know. Probably. We'll go through some of the weird deaths that have happened on this estate. The family would often wake up at 5.15 in the morning to the smell of rotting flesh permeating the air. This odor often was a sign that angry spirits had arrived and was usually followed by beds being lifted up into the air and family members being tossed from them. What a weird time. Yeah. 5.15. I mean, at that point, you might as well stay up. <laughs> you I mean, know? Yeah. They're probably pissed, especially it's like it's a school day. So yeah, I have to get up like, at 6 geez. anyway. So now I just now I'm 45 just, minutes yeah. of sleep. <gasps> Some of the more demonic entities in the home would physically assault the children at night by pulling their hair and yanking on their limbs. The family claims to have heard voices coming from the walls of the home and discovered that they were from the spirits of seven dead soldiers that had been buried in the walls. Why? Why in the walls? Who knows? I don't know. Why are there soldiers there in the first place? What is this? Anyone's guess at this point. The heating system would suddenly die with no cause and Roger Perrin would be forced to descend into the basement, which was known to be home to several nasty spirits to fix it. Call somebody. (laughs) Carolyn and Cindy seemed to receive the bulk of attention from the entities in the house. Carolyn recalls one strange incident when she entered the dining room to find two men seated at the table. One man noticed her and directed the other man's attention to her by pointing. Carolyn would later say that she thought that to the men, she was the ghost in the room and that she considers the house to be a portal to both the past and the future. Oh my God. Oh my God. Do you know what movie that is? What? Do you know what movie? The Skeleton no. Key. Yes. Never seen the it? The Skeleton Where? Key. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. Spoilers. But <laughs> the whole movie, this family's being haunted by horrible mm-hmm. ghosts. And then in the end, they find the out they're the ghosts. Yeah. Yep, it's like that. Cindy was harassed the most out of the daughters and was assaulted almost daily. Andrea Perrin believes that Cindy, who had died briefly during an operation at two months old, was the main target for many malevolent spirits because of her ties to the afterlife. Cindy had encounters with spirits, like I said, daily, and remembers growing up in the house as the worst decade of her life. The most nefarious entity that inhabited the parents' home was that of Bathsheba Sherman. Bathsheba was born Bathsheba Thayer in Rhode Island. Not a great name. No. In 1812 and didn't marry until she was in her early 30s when she met Judson Sherman. They were married on March 10th, 1844. 
Judson and Bathsheba had one son named Herbert Sherman in 1849 when Bathsheba was 37 years old. Hmm. So for back then, very old. Very old. Old woman walking to her grave. (laughs) Yep. Also, in some places, it was like, his name was Herman Sherman. And I was like, no, that can't be it. (laughs) No, we're we're going to ignore that. I think it's a typo. It is believed that the couple had three other children that all died at a young age. A lot of people say before seven years old. The Shermans lived at the old Arnold estate for their entire lives together until both died in the 1880s. Bathsheba was a housewife and Judson farmed the land. The family would occasionally take in a boarder to help on the farm, and they seemed normal to those around them. But while living on the Arnold estate, an incident occurred that would mark Bathsheba as a witch for the remainder of her life and afterlife. Bathsheba had been tending to a neighbor's infant when it mysteriously died. The child was examined, and it was determined that it had died from being stabbed at the base of the skull with a sewing needle. What? Yeah. So, like, Mystery solved. Yeah. The townspeople believed that Bathsheba had murdered the child in order to offer it as a sacrifice to the devil. That's a big reach. It is a reach, but that's what they stuck to. They couldn't just have... Maybe she had a sewing needle in her skirt and she laid the baby down. Could have. It could have been an accident. Charges were brought against Bathsheba, but a jury found her not guilty due to insufficient evidence. However, the public was not convinced of her innocence. Rumors that Bathsheba was abusive to the Sherman farm staff and routinely starved and beat her helpers only supported the belief that she was a vicious witch. Yeah, but were those true or were they rumors after? So they're probably true. I think that was kind of before and after. She was just kind of a dick to everyone. Uh The rest of Bathsheba's life played out. That's a theme of this. Old, old cunts. Old cunts. (laughs) Old bitches. Bathsheba uh, and Gertrude. Yep, together, together forever. Together in hell. Yep. The rest of Bathsheba's life played out uneventfully until her death on May 25th, 1885. Judson predeceased her by four years, and Herbert had taken control of the farm and married in 1881. According to lore, Bathsheba died of a bizarre form of paralysis that eventually froze her body. She was buried in a historic cemetery across the street from a fire station in downtown Harrisville, Rhode Island, just outside of the Sherman Farm estate. The Perrin family first heard of Bathsheba when Ed and Lorraine Warren visited the farm. Carolyn told the Warrens about an incident that had occurred years earlier. She had been lying on a couch in the living room when she suddenly felt a piercing pain in her calf, which then caused the muscle to spasm. She looked at the painful area and found a puddle of blood where she had felt something pierce it. The wound was perfectly circular, as if a large sewing needle had punctured her. When Carolyn told the Warrens this story, along with some information they had found out about the history of the house, they put together that the malignant spirit was that of Bathsheba Sherman. Though there were countless presences in the home, Bathsheba seemed the most violent and the most focused on Carolyn. The family discovered through historic records that eight generations of the extended Arnold family had lived and died in the house before it was bought by the parents. There were two suicides by hanging, one suicide by poison, two drownings. Oh, wait, sorry. Suicide by poison? Yeah. They poisoned themselves. Uh, Two drownings, four men who froze to death, and the rape and murder of an 11-year-old girl named Prudence Arnold by a farmhand. That's awful, but also froze to death. Isn't that a home? Yes, four froze to death. How did they freeze to death? I don't know. 
this is all. In what way? <laughs> I need answers. Maybe while they were farming, they just froze and never <laughs> just, woke up. <laughs> fucking... The Warrens attempted to help the Perrin family, but according to Andrea Perrin, their presence only made the activity worse. The Warrens attempted to perform a seance while Carolyn was possessed by the spirit of Bathsheba. Carolyn began to speak in an unknown language, and her chair levitated into the air. The seance lasted for hours and left Carolyn drained and physically hindered after her body had spent a long period of time distorted. Ew. Andrea and Cindy Perrin witnessed the seance while hiding in the shadows outside of the room. So they were, like, peeking in on this. Not great. No, it scarred them for the rest of their lives. Once the seance had ended, Roger Perrin threw the Warrens out of the house. He was worried about Carolyn's safety and her mental health. Roger was the only member of the Perrin family who did not believe in ghosts or the paranormal while living in the house. The family sought help from the Catholic Church, but were instead cast out. Roger Perrin had been on course to become a priest before he met Carolyn and had been a devout Catholic his entire life. When he was informed that his children were no longer welcome in CCD and that his youngest daughters would not be confirmed, his identity was shaken. The priest of the local church did not want his congregation affected by the issues that were plaguing the Perrin family and their old farmhouse. It took many years and the premature death of April Perrin for the entire family to come to terms with the reality of their experiences. Wait, which one's April? April's the youngest one, I think, She's or second youngest. She died very suddenly after they had moved out of the house. I'm not sure from what, but Andrea Perrin talks about it a little bit. I didn't know that. Yeah. That's crazy. They're all alive, even the mother and father, I think, except for April. April died and actually... Andrea Perrin said that before they had found out that April died, she visited Cindy. And uh, Andrea Perrin cries when she's talking about this. She's like, she passed so suddenly that she didn't know she was dead. And Cindy had to tell her that she was dead. (gasps) Yeah, it's really heartbreaking. After the seance, the family stayed in the home out of financial necessity. Finally, in 1980, they sold the Arnold estate and moved to Georgia. Finally, the family believed that they were free from the spirits of the home that had haunted them for almost a decade. However, according to Andrea Perrin, some of the spirits had become attached to the family and followed them for years after the move. The man who purchased the home to restore it after the Perrin family moved out reportedly left suddenly without his car, clothing, or tools. He never returned for his belongings, and it sat vacant for years. The current owners have reported several incidents, including People live there? Yeah. Oh, we're going to talk about them. So they've reported several incidents, including the sounds of people talking in empty rooms, doors banging, disembodied footsteps, and their chairs suddenly vibrating. Nice little massage chair. (laughs) The current owners experienced many trespassers after The Conjuring was released and attempted to refute Andrea Perrin's account of the family's time at the home. In 2015, the owners of the house sued Warner Brothers over the movie. They requested monetary damages as well as an amount to install a security system. (laughs) Andrea Perrin is currently working on a film adaptation of her series, House of Darkness, House of Light. She claims that while The Conjuring movie is a wonderful piece of horror cinema, it doesn't quite do the Perrin story justice. 
Andrea Perrin has said in interviews that many true accounts of the haunting were banned from being portrayed in the film out of fear that filming those scenes would negatively affect the child actors in the movie and that showing these horrifying events would drive audiences away. Holy shit. Yeah. She was like, the most terrifying things that happened in that house were not shown in that movie and that was deliberate. Wow. She also spoke very highly of James Wan. She was saying that he was... At first, she was like, oh, that's the guy that did the Saw movies? I'm not going to like this guy. And she was like, he was so great. He consulted her all the time. He was very uh, vigilant about the child actors in the movie. And he kept reminding them that it's all fake. Don't worry. You're Mm -hmm. fine. And he would break if they need a break. Well, that's good. Yeah. So apparently, we're going to get the full story of what happened, including all that really terrifying stuff that was not allowed to be in The Conjuring. Yeah, that's kind of exciting and, like, scary Mm -hmm. that it wasn't in there to begin with. Yeah. Apparently, she sat and talked with the heads of Warner Brothers, and they were like, listen, it's better for us to tell a story that isn't the complete story and have audiences see it than it is to tell the full story and have people walk out and no one see it. Mm -hmm. So that's why she was, like, she has nothing against The Conjuring or really the Warrens at all. She's just like, yeah, it's just not the whole story. It's just not the whole story, yeah. Andrea Perrin, I would so recommend listening to any of her interviews, reading her book. She has this great line she said in an interview I was listening to because she was talking about how devastating it was for her father when the church refused to help them and then cast them out. And she said, oh, I hope I say it correctly, but she was like, religion is crowd control. Spirituality is enlightenment. Right. So she she has some, uh, I think, pretty solid views about ghosts and the afterlife and religion and all that kind of stuff. So. Yeah. And they're all like, they're older now. They have grandchildren. Apparently, you know, they're still a very close family. Mm-hmm. I think Andrea Perrin actually lives with her mother mm-hmm. and takes care of her. So, yeah, that's the true story behind The Conjuring. I want to know how the girl died. The young girl. April. And when. Yeah. Like, how old was she? I wonder. I think. I think she was in, like, I don't know, her 30s or something. I'll have to look it up. No one quote me on that because, you know. But um, I couldn't find it before we recorded this. That's why I don't know. Yeah, I was just kind of looking. The only obituary I found was for a 51-year-old. Yeah. I mean, it could have been because they're all, I think, in their 60s or something Mm -hmm. now. But the only time I've heard about her death was through Andrea Perrin. Right. Yeah, so that's that's the story. A little bit lighter than yours, but also horrifying. It's still horrible, though. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that was our True Origins of Horror Movies Part 2. Thank you all for listening. I'm Austin Costelli. I'm Reparata Hattersley. Yeah, and we are Austin Costelli on social media and... Reparata Ann on social media. Social media. Uh, We are Hell and High Horror on everything except Twitter. On there, we're Hell High Horror. Our Patreon is up and running. We just Mm -hmm. recorded our next Wildcard episode. We're going to release that. Um, And then it'll be, you know, followed by another one and another, just like they do. And we're going to be at PodX at the end of this month. Very exciting. On the 31st and June 2nd, we're going to be doing a live show and a presentation. And if you want to attend, that's here in downtown Nashville. Mm -hmm. You can use the code HORROR to get 10% off your tickets. And we look forward to seeing everyone there. Yeah. Yeah. I can't wait. Yeah. Uh, If you have any stories to share with us, please send them to HelenHighHorror at gmail.com. We're always excited to read your stories. Mm -hmm. 
And please rate, review, and subscribe. Yeah. I think that's it, right? I think that's it. Okay. Happy hauntings, Happy everyone. Hauntings. Bye. Bye.